Good morning. Today we are starting a new series in the book of Jonah called God's Infuriating Grace. And so grab your Bibles and flip to the book of Jonah. You might have a hard time finding the book, so look at the table of contents. Uh, because it's a small book, uh, maybe a few pages in the Bible, maybe just a page even. And it's located near a bunch of small prophetic books. So uh, just look it up and... Uh, find it. Uh, So I said it's a short book. There's four chapters in it, but there are numerous themes that this book has in these pages that will speak about who God is and who we are in light of who God is. And so within that umbrella, that's going to be the umbrella statement of the whole book, who God is and who we are in light of who God is. And so within that umbrella, there are many other topics that will come up in this book. Topics such as, is this book about race and nationalism? Because Jonah cares deeply about his nation's security over, uh, over and above another city's brokenness. Is this book about evangelism? Because, Jonah got, because God sends a prophet, Jonah, to share his message uh, with those who don't know him. Is this book about those who walk with God but struggle to obey God? Because Jonah, who's a prophet, flees from what God tells him to do. And so the answer is yes. Yes, it's all of these, it's all of these themes and so many more. But most importantly, most importantly, above all these themes of this book, if you start reading it, you find out this book is relatable. It's relatable. Most, if not all of us, can relate to Jonah. He's a very religious guy who grew up in a religious culture, and, uh, and we're quite similar. And before, before you know, you're thinking, what are you talking about? We live in Colorado. Colorado is not religious. I mean, nobody goes to church. Well, it's religious in the sense that if you're driving on, on 23rd Avenue, you'll see a Mormon temple, you'll see a Catholic church and a Christian church all within a block. Or you're, you're, we're talking about here, we're gathering right now in a church building, but there's a church that's happening right behind us at the same time. There's a church across the street and there's a mosque that's just a block away from here. So you see, there's churches, if you go through downtown and drive, there's churches on every corner. And so in that way, we are religious. So Greeley is a religious city because religion is everywhere. But you can be a religious person who lives in a religious city and never have your heart transformed by the gospel. And the story of Jonah pierces through religion, shows us the gospel. Uh, it's, a, it's one of those stories that has a concrete way to show us what sin really is and what grace is in light of that. And, um, and if you're anything like me, if you grew up in the church or if you have any kind of Christian background, and you, have, you probably have heard of words like sin and grace over and over and over. Right? Like you, you've, you've heard it so many times that somehow having, when you hear these words, uh, your mind kind of almost can turn off and forget what they really truly mean. They lose their meaning. What is sin or what is grace? And if, if I'm not careful, if I don't really know what sin is and what grace is, then I don't really get the gospel. 
I won't get the gospel. And in this story, even, even today, we're going to study only three verses. We're going to study just the first three verses of, our, of chapter 1. We'll see sin and we'll see grace. We'll see Jonah running away from God, which is sin. And then we'll see a God who's over all things, who showed his mercy, despised Jonah's sin, chasing after Jonah. That's grace. And so let me mention one last thing, and then we'll jump into our study of the book of Jonah. Um, one last thing is that this book also shows a great love for a city. Great love for a city. Uh, a few weeks ago, I talked about how uh, the job that you have is part of God's plan. The house that you live in is part of God's plan. And the city that you live in is part of God's plan. Man, like he's not making a mistake like, ah, oh, I actually wanted them to live in Loveland, but they live in Greeley. Like, no, God knows that you live where you live. And I'm not making fun of Loveland people, by the way. Loveland is a great, fantastic city. But for most of us, we live in the city of Greeley. And so like, God put us here. And God cares for the people in our city of Greeley. Like we have a college campus just a block from us that has 12,000 plus Students, unless that number changed in the past year or two. Uh, our city has over 100,000 people living in the city, and it's, the city's still growing. We have over 6,000 refugees who live in our city. And about 80% of the people in our city do not attend a church service. In light of all of this, God loves the city of Greeley and the people of Greeley, even though they may not love him or care about him. And we'll see in the book of Jonah that God desires a city of people to worship him. A city of people who don't care about him, don't want to worship him. He loves them and sends them a messenger, Jonah, to proclaim the gospel of grace. But the thing that we're going to keep coming back to over and over and over, the thing we're going to keep coming back to is that this book will show us over throughout all these themes of love for the city or, or any of the things that we just talked about is, that, that, that is, is who God is and who we are in light of who God is. That's going to be the theme that we keep coming back to. So if you're able, let's stand. Let's read um, this, this three, three verses together. And um, yeah, let's start, start the study of the book of Jonah together. Let's read. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amantai, saying, Arise, go to the Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee Tarnish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarnish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarnishish away from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of God. God. You can have a seat. So, our text starts with a very, very common phrase. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of, and a really hard word, right? Amittai, I think. Um, so it's, it's a common phrase. It's a common phrase because many of the biblical prophets, uh, pro, uh, biblical prophets started their writings this way. 
God would speak to his people using one of, their, one of the prophets. So God is about to speak through one of his prophets, Jonah, presumably to his people, the Israelites. Like if you start reading this, if you were back in the day and you opened the book for the first time and you're reading this, you're thinking, oh, okay, God is about to say something to us. Because most likely you probably will be a Hebrew who will be reading this text. And so you'll be like, oh, God is about to speak to us, the Israelites. But the question is, who is Jonah? Let's start there. Who is Jonah? Well, we don't know a ton about Jonah. Uh, yes, we have a book written about Jonah, but, but besides this book, there's only one other place that talks about his upbringing or who he is, and then Jesus' reference to, to Jonah. Besides that, we don't have a ton of information. Like, we don't know where he was born. Like, this book doesn't tell us. Uh, we don't know um, where he grew up. Like, we don't know his mom or dad. Like, we don't know a ton of details about his life, his personal life. But all the things that we know come from 2 Kings 14. And so here's what we know about him from 2 Kings, is that he's a prophet of God. He's a prophet of God. He's a prophet of God, but not only a prophet of God, but one of the leading prophets of God in Israel. And a prophet of God is someone who hears from God and usually calls God's people, so the Jews in this context would be, he calls the, the Hebrews back to himself or back to God. So Jonah is an Israelite as a leading prophet of this time. And for you to be a leading prophet of this time meant that you're not only prophesying things, but the things that you're saying are coming to fruition. So uh, you can't just kind of self-name yourself the leading prophet of the time. Like, you have to be a prophet who says things and it happened and people go, yeah, I respect that man because what he has said, God has spoken through him. And so he, would, he, was, a, he was a prophet who was well-respected. And so we know that he's a prophet. We know that people around him respected him. And he's a spiritual man. He probably was trained by Elijah and Elisha because he's a prophet that comes after them. So if you're trying to picture, if you grew up in a Christian um, kind of background, you may know some of the stories about Elisha and Elijah and the, the miracles and everything that went through that. So they most likely discipled Jonah. So this is who the word of the Lord comes to, Jonah. So what's the word that comes to him? Well, that's verse 2. It says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call against it, for the evil has come, above, um, come up before me. And so those who read this text originally would be shocked by this statement. It's shocking because God is calling a Hebrew prophet to go out to a Gentile city. He's not, not calling him to prophesy about the, about the gentle, Gentile city. No, he's calling him to actually go to a Gentile city. Like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Amos all have prophesied about nations outside of Israel, but none of them were called to go there. But that is the calling of Jonah, and it is shocking. What's more shocking is the city that Jonah is called to go to, Nineveh. Nineveh is located in the Assyrian Empire, and Assyrian, uh, Assyria was one of the cruelest, most violent empires in ancient history. And if you're thinking, well, how cruel? Well, if, if they capture their enemies, they would cut off their legs and one arm, leaving the other arm and hand so they could shake the victim's hand in mockery as he was dying. 
and I'm not even, even reading or telling you the worst things that they did. That's just one of the things, right? Like you, your stomach might churn if I went through the details of the way how cruel and vicious they were. The city itself was a pretty massive, beautiful city. Uh, it was about 60 miles in circumference. So if you're trying to picture, uh, just, just picture like New York or Paris or London uh, just back in the day, right? Like it's a pretty big city. Uh, some of the numbers that they estimate is that there was about 2 million people lived in the city. So like that's a, that's a pretty big number for, for a city back in the day, right? And they had this, it's a huge city, and they managed to build this massive wall, our, our entire, entire circumference to protect themselves. That's what cities did back in the day. They would build these big walls to protect themselves. And, and so this is a 60-mile wall, basically, that, that, that maybe more, I don't know how circumference works. But, but it's like, so it's a big, huge, massive wall that they build around the city. And, and it's so big that, that if you got on top of it, there would be three chariots that you can fit next to each other. Right? Like, so it's a, it's, a, it's a big wall that you can have, you know, probably, I mean, I have no idea how big the chariots really are, but like probably as big as from that wall to that wall, right? Like it's just a, it's a massive wall around this big city. And so Nineveh is this enormous walled-in metropolis of this, of this brutal nation, and to this city, God calls Jonah to go. So you see, like as I'm describing this thing, it doesn't make a ton of sense uh, for Jonah to go there. But if it's hard for us to imagine this, if you're, if you're still, as I'm describing all the ins and outs of, of Jonah's background, who he is, and, and the, how cruel the city is and everything, if that's still not enough for you to, to kind of grab, uh, to get your imagination going, the closest parallel that the experts give is that, that if you had a Jewish rabbi, so imagine this is World War II happening, and you have a Jewish rabbi standing on the streets of Berlin and calling Nazi Germany to repent. This is the same kind of calling that Jonah has. If, if that idea makes you cringe, then, then you're starting to understand Jonah's position a little better. You're starting to go, oh, okay. So what does Jonah do to that? What does Jonah do? Jonah responds in verse 3, but Jonah rose. And so you're thinking he rose to, to go, right? He rose to flee to Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. God said, go to Nineveh. Jonah got up and went complete opposite direction. That is a definition of rebelling. That is the definition of rebelling. Go to Nineveh, which is east of you. Jonah goes west. He's called to go to a big city, and he goes down the opposite direction. He gets on the boat and buys a one-way ticket out of there to, to nowhere in some ways. And at first glance, as we were walking through the story, you may be thinking, I'm with Jonah on the boat. If I was to put in the same place, I'm with Jonah on the boat. I would like, I would not want to go to a dangerous city. I like my legs and an arm. Like, right? Like, that, that might be crossing your mind. Like, 
it makes a lot of sense why Jonah would not want to go there. But listen to this. Listen to this. I'm about to give away the ending. So in case you have not heard, uh, he does go eventually to this, to this city. And afterwards, we get to hear from Jonah's mouth why he runs away. He didn't, he didn't run because he was afraid. He didn't run because he didn't think God could transform the whole city. He ran because he knew God could change this city. He knew that. Uh, we Westerns struggle with the idea of miracles, but Jonah was a prophet who, was, who had seen God at work. If Elijah and Elisha have discipled him, trained him, then he saw God do some miraculous things. And so he knew that if God declared something, he knew that it was going to happen. He, wasn't, he, was, he knew that this, is, this, this will, will come to fruition. So if you flip just a few pages to chapter 4, this is after the people of Nineveh have repented, repented and churned to God. So chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country, that, that it was why I made haste to flee to Tarshish? For I knew that you are gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Do you see what just happened? He just said, the reason that I, that I got up and ran was not because I was afraid, and it was not because I didn't think that God could, could lead them or change them, lead them to repent, but because God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and bowing in steadfast love. The reason I got on the boat to go to that city is because I am a self-righteous, racist bigot, even though I'm a prophet of God. So the rebel in our story is a religious man who runs from God and later on when he sees salvation is upset with God that God has showed mercy to the people of Nineveh. And we'll talk a lot more when we get to chapter 4 about the ins and outs of that. But in chapter 1 we see him running because he thinks he knows better than God. He thinks he knows better than God. Jonah didn't see a good reason for God to save a pagan nation. So what does he do? He rebels. He rebels by going the opposite direction of what God calls him. He mistrusted God. He doubted God's, the goodness of God. He doubted God's sovereignty. He doubted God's wisdom. He doubted God's justice. Why? Because he thought he knew best. Listen, the rebel in our story is a good church-going believer who has sound orthodoxy. The rebel is not someone who doesn't believe in God. It's the one who believes in God but runs from God, the one who doubts God's character. And this, this becomes evident in our lives when something difficult happens. Something difficult happens. Maybe, maybe you hear something hard from a doctor. You hear something hard from a doctor, and you leave thinking, God, how's this good for me? God, how's this good for me? Maybe your significant other ends it, a relationship that seemed like a perfect romantic relationship just crashed and burned. God, how is this good for me? 
Maybe you lost your job. God, how is this good for me? Whatever it is, whatever the hardship that may strike you, whatever it is, right? God, how is this good for me? And that question, that question breathes doubt, the doubt of God's goodness for me. And what that question also does, it elevates me as a master of what's good and right. So in that moment, when that question hits you, it's a moment that you just said, God, I don't think you're good, but I know what's good and right for me. You replaced him. And this question of doubt is nothing new. It's nothing new because from the beginning, Adam and Eve struggle with this question. In Genesis 2, God gives Adam and Eve a command. In Genesis 2, 16 and 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. The fruit looked good, though. It looked desirable, pleasing. And Adam and Eve, similarly to Jonah, couldn't find a good reason for God's command. They couldn't find a good reason. If I can't find a good re- enough reason, then I assume that God is not trustworthy. So what happens? They ate. Jonah ran, and we do the same. We rebel. We rebel. How we rebel, how we rebel is not unique either. It's not unique. Scholars have pointed out the book of Jonah is like a story of the prodigal son. And Jesus used the story of the prodigal son to show us the the ways we run from God. The way we rebel against God. And in the first two chapters, Jonah is like the younger brother who runs away from God. And then in chapters 3 and 4, Jonah is like the older brother who's upset that God, uh, with God because a nation has repented. And in Luke 15, we see the younger brother who runs from home, right? He takes his inheritance from the father. He leaves home and everything that's, that, that the home stands for, moral values and a loving father. Then he lives as he wishes. The older brother stays with the father and obeys him completely. But when the younger son returns, the father throws a huge, amazing party. And we see the older brother's heart gets revealed, right? He's angry with the father because the father is showing mercy to the one who doesn't deserve mercy. The one who disobeyed. It's highlighting his heart that he doesn't love the father, but thinks he knows better than the father. Do you see that? Do you see the connection now? Jonah takes turns, acting first the role of a younger brother by running away, but ultimately repenting and asking for God's grace. Just as the younger brother leaves home, comes back to the father's house with a broken, repentant heart. Then Jonah becomes the older brother, obeying God's command to go and preach to Nineveh, But what we saw, what just happened, right? What we just read in chapter 4, he gets angry. Just like the older brother seeing the younger brother repentant and living inside of Father's mercy. So the older brother is livid. And our distrust in the Father is similar to these two brothers and these two, two attitudes of Jonah. And not much has changed. 
not much has changed. Our lives tend to fluctuate the attitude of the older brother and the attitude of the younger brother. We just keep going back and forth. And often, and often, criticizing the other brother. Often sitting on the wrong end and screaming, you know, whether you're an older brother screaming at the younger brother or the younger brother screaming at the older brother. And it's easy for us to look at the younger brothers around us and see what's wrong with them. It's easy to say, Jonah, what are you running away from what God is calling you to do? It's easy to criticize the younger brother because most of the symptoms of the younger brother are those that can be pointed to and described as sin. What's harder is to identify the older brother. It's harder to find things that are wrong with the older brother because on the outside, his attitude looks like obedience. If the younger brother is someone who doesn't want to be under God's control who wants to live however he or she wants to, the older brother is someone who wants to control God or distrust God's goodness because he thinks he knows better than God. And the way the older brother lives is by living a pious religious life. They live up to to the standard of good that they set up for themselves and, and then they feel like they paid their dues. Now, God owes them. Because of their obedience and right living, they believe God should bless them and answer their prayers. And it's not about this joyful relationship with the Father, but a joyless, controlling relationship where where we are in charge. And when something goes not according to our plan, we know now who to blame. We know now who to blame. And the book of Jonah exposes both of these tendencies. It exposes both of these tendencies. This book will expose how we're often the older brother trying to control God. This book will expose how we're the younger brother who's running from God. But most importantly, most importantly, this book will push us to the one who's the author of salvation. This book will expose that our hearts are broken, showing us that the problem is not outside of us, but it's actually inside of us, and that we need a Savior as much as the Ninevites, a Savior who can transform us by His mercy and grace. And this transformation starts when I realize that I'm just like Jonah, and at times I run from God, and at times I try to control God. So this moment of transformation has to happen if you start to identify yourself with Jonah and seeing where in your life you are running away from God and where in your life you're starting to control God. And I need God to save me from me. The only way Jonah can see his own sin is by seeing himself as the one who lives under the mercy of God. It's this realization that nothing he can do to earn his salvation. It's a realization that salvation comes when we admit that we are completely broken and in need of Jesus. It's unless we realize we'll never understand how God can show mercy to evil people and remain just and faithful. So unless we sit under his mercy, seeing ourselves as this broken, sinful 
person who needs Jesus. And as we study this book, Jonah tries all kinds of tricks to get away from God. He, you know, as we will read on, we will see how he tries to get away and, and all these things. But we'll see God's grace and mercy is always one step ahead of him. It's always one step ahead of him. And God continues to show mercy to us, even though we often are running away from him. God is ahead of you. God is ahead of you. His mercy and grace are a gift to us through the Son, Jesus. Jesus died for the one who's running away from him, and Jesus died for the religious person who struggles to show mercy. We are these people all the time, and Jesus loves us. The father ran to the younger son when he returned. And that love that the father extended to the younger son allowed, allowed the younger son to, well, I would say, repent in that moment, even though he had all the list of wrongs that he had done. He was coming to say, but the father lo- running to him, it was more like, I want, this is what I wanted to say. And that love compelled his heart to melt away. The father goes outside to the angry older brother, showing that the most religious and most moral people need the grace of God too. And the hope extends to Jonah from chapter 1 and 2. And that same hope is extended to Jonah in chapter 3 and 4. And that same grace and mercy is extended to us in this room. No matter what is going on in your life, Jesus died on the cross on your behalf. If you're finding yourself running from God right now, remember, Jesus gives mercy and forgiveness as a gift. And the Father will run towards you. If you find yourself trying to control God, remember Jesus paid it all. His death even paid for all the good works that you keep trying to bring to the table. He said on the cross, it is finished. May we be a people who live under that banner. So as we study this book, You see, it's going to reveal a lot. It's going to reveal a lot of where we have sin tendencies. We're going to reveal a lot that that there's places where we may not understand God's grace as what we thought we did. It's going to shatter some of these categories for us. And that's a good thing. That's a very good thing because when our categories get shattered, God can come in and and show his mercy and kindness. So may this book wake, wake us up to the reality of grace and mercy. May this book cause us to repent from areas where we're running from God. May this book cause us to repent when we find anger towards God's grace. But may this book push us to Jesus, who's the author of our salvation who is not, not in this gutter or the other, but, but he is the true Savior. May we look to our older brother who died on the cross for us. May we pray for us.